Will the Curtain Come Down on Movie Theaters? And the New York Times Can't Save the Newspaper Industry. This is episode 65 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, this episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you by StackAdapt. StackAdapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. And who doesn't want to do that? Right. If you're an agency or a brand, the biggest challenge you have is capturing attention, right? StackAdapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. It's like a crystal ball, Tom. I love that. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. It's simple technology that works. Visit stackadapt.com and request an invite today. Tom, topic one, will the curtain come down on movie theaters? We have a couple of pieces here. The first, and I found this to be kind of fascinating for some interesting reasons Mm -hmm. uh, from The Wrap. Netflix chief Ted Sarandos, Uncensored, Why Blockbusters Are Doomed. Hmm. What a great title. I know. I wish I'd come up with it. <laughs> um, so this is a range, wide-ranging interview with uh, Ted uh, Sarandos from Netflix. Covers a lot of ground. Interesting note, just to understand how big their operation is. $6 billion production budget. Mm, Jesus. <laughs> and a gleaming new headquarters in Hollywood where a couple of years ago they had 500 people and today they have 1,000 people yep. working. It's really pretty amazing. But relative to um, our topic here, the interesting comments, you know, Netflix has been kind of really firm in its decision uh, to not put any movies in theaters in advance of their the uh, their exhibition on Netflix. A big believer in the so-called day and date idea that uh, it should the movie should appear. Uh, in one place, everywhere, all at the same time, even if it's at different prices or whatever, but it should be one place everywhere. And uh, he's kind of alone in that feeling, at least <laughs> relative to Amazon. Amazon, which will put out uh, some stuff in theaters. No, no, he's alone with regard to businesses, not necessarily oh, yes. consumers. <laughs> no, and he makes that very, very point. In fact, that, look, from a consumer standpoint, they want it when they want it. They want it wherever it is right. and let them decide what price they want to pay for it, right? And that's a very rational thing. It just flies in the face of an entire established industry called the theatrical uh, <laughs> filmmaking, you know, the theatrical movie complex. So um, here was the conversation. It was kind of a Q&A format. Um, they talked about a movie that uh, Netflix is putting out at Christmas time, the first big budget film of this genre you've done. And uh, Sarando says, We have a minimal theatrical release and no release ahead of us. If AMC and Regal would book the movie's day and date, I'm not against it. <laughs> I love that. Why would he be against it? I'm not against it. Against it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not against it if you give me money hand over fist. Right. My main thing is consumer satisfaction. If you really believe people would abandon movie theaters if day and date releasing were going on, that doesn't say much for the industry. I have more faith in them than they do. No, actually, Tom, I think no. he has less stock in them than they do. Yeah. That's <laughs> no, what he has. It's unbelievable. Um, is there any question in your mind, and we've got a bunch of stuff we're going to go through on this, but don't you kind of fundamentally believe that the mission is hopeless when it comes to movie theaters, that no matter what bell and whistle they add to the experience, ultimately the desire of people to get what they want when they want it um, uh, that there's really nothing that movie theaters can do? When it comes to movies, right. <laughs> because, you know, if you look at 
take a look at Netflix. I, I mean, when, I, the, when you said it, I don't think, let's make sure everybody heard what you said. They have a $6 billion budget to make movies and TV right. shows. Right. That is huge, huge. Right. And why can they do that? Because of this business model that they have, right? They have this huge subscriber base. I mean, think about it. I was thinking about this. I said, you know, 10 years ago, they had 7 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. They're closing in on 100 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You throw in nine, 10 bucks a month and 100 million, right? That is a lot, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And that's why his statement, which sounds weird, actually makes sense. He said, we're programming for 93 million unique tastes. So I don't think we are anywhere near too much programming. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting. What's also kind of funny about it is, you know, wrapped up in your point is the idea that we subscribe and he creates these films for those of us who subscribe. So technically we're subscribing so that he can make movies we like, right? Isn't that strange? Think about the difference between <laughs> that and the and the problem of the movie theater, which is saying, look, we'll mess with every ingredient in the recipe other than what's up on the screen. Yeah, right. <laughs> The, the very thing you're here for, um, that is going to, you know, come what may, will be whatever it is. But boy, we'll mess with every other ingredient. And the other thing I think that's so funny about what he says here, and again, it's so easy to see his perspective from his perspective and agree with it. Oh, it is now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he says, for example, he, the, the, the questioner asks, well, look at the IMAX and look at the, the same changes in seats and all this, every you know, the changes that have been going on in the in the in the theaters, and uh, he said, "Well, it's a big investment in those seats." And Sarando says, "Let's say you have a great steakhouse. Are they going to ban consumers from eating steak at home? Food is day and date. People still go to great restaurants. <laughs> Tom, yes, people still go to great restaurants for." Great food, Tom. I know. Food, food that's better than you can get at home. Not the exact same food at home served with better seating. Exactly. Uh, this is the funny, funny thing about this that I, uh, you know, it's just, it's, I totally understand where he's coming from. And I agree with his, with his notion. It's just that, you know, this weird theater thing literally stands in the way. The other piece that we have in this regard is from uh, the LA Times and it's, and the title is Rumbling Seats, Virtual Reality, Booze, How Cinemas <laughs> Are Adapting to Uncertain Future. And again, what's missing from that title? The movie, right? right. Movie go here's, here's in the text of the uh, piece. Moviegoers have, in uh, have increasingly innovative and expensive options, especially in Los Angeles, a laboratory of multiplex innovation. The cinema industry is trying everything it can, motion seats, virtual reality, and even competitive video gaming to see what takes hold. Tom, the central part of that paragraph that I want to focus on are three words. In Los Angeles. Right. No, you're right. <laughs> a a, a movie-going market, um, that is characteristic of no other, <laughs> and a, a movie-going market, I think it's fair to say, that's not relevant when it comes to the actual you know, source of movie-going, of, of uh, uh, theatrical revenue in America. I mean, it's, it's Peoria that matters more than L.A. Right. And these experiments, these attractions, the amount of money that people are willing to pay in Los Angeles for a full-bore movie-going experience in the same town where they happen to work over at Warner Brothers right. is <laughs> completely different than what they're going to pay in middle America. And I, I think to some extent, and you've, I'm sure, taken 
part in some of this. I've taken part in some of this. I feel like to some extent, this is some weird upscale fantasy, you know, that certainly works for a, for a portion of the marketplace. But the idea that this is the salvation for the theatrical experience writ large, I think is, is a fiction. What do you think? Well, I think your point is, is spot on about, it's about the movie. I mean, in, in essence, they're, they're trying to, I don't know, they know what's coming, all right? They, they can see that this day and date thing is coming. It's coming. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, okay, if we don't have exclusivity of a particular product for a period of time, because that's what's driving their value right now, is exclusivity. They're saying, well, if we don't have that in the future, then let's make sure that we have some other type of differentiation like seats and you can buy a meal and you can have a drink and, and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And, and to your point, they're completely missing the point. Why are you going there? You're not going there for a seat and a meal and a drink. <laughs> you you right. go to a restaurant for that. So I think what they need to be looking at, and I could be like way off base here, I think they, ha- they ought to look at, hey, how do we make money today, guys? What's our unique advantage? Exclusivity. Okay, mm-hmm. what about this particular experience is exclusive that people can't get anywhere else? Well, maybe it's the emotional power of the collective experience. You know, maybe that's it. Maybe people want to feel other people around them when they're watching something up on a big screen. Then go and start getting you know, audio-enhanced live concerts, live sporting events, some seminar that you can't travel to, you know, that you, that you want to go watch on this big screen it, it, as a collective experience. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yes. Something yes. you can't get sitting in your living room. And they're, and as you know, they're doing that. I can't remember the service. I'm blanking out on what it's called offhand. But, you know, there's the service that shows opera performances and, you know, rare concerts and um, things like that. And it's all in movie theaters. And these, uh, I can't remember what it's called. I did a thing, in fact, once a few years ago for uh, Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. And it was like Halloween time. And they were showing like, a, uh, perfectly along the lines of what you're saying, they were showing like a double feature of Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, but it, it also had an introduction by Robert Osborne and interviews with, you know, knowledgeable people in between the two movies at one of their film festivals. So in other words, it was, as you say, literally an experience different from either of those two ancient movies. Right. And they charged, I think, $25 a seat. So there we were paying $50. To watch two movies <laughs> that are uh, almost a hundred years old, um, well, eighty years old, yeah, and uh, along with some extra content, we were watching in a movie theater. Now it was hardly crowded, I will tell you, but it was certainly incremental movie that Universal and Turner Classic Movies wouldn't have gotten any other way. Mark, listen, they have to. This is this is called innovation. This is creativity. This is doing deals. This is thinking out of the box. They have to do these things live. They have to live stream these things, figure out how to make it happen, right? Listen, mm-hmm. so so you're sitting at home and you're saying, boy, that Hamilton thing, that, I, that looks really interesting. Oh, yeah, honey, let's, uh, let's fly to New York, stay at a $300-a-night <laughs> hotel, go out to eat. No, what if we can just go down the street to, cine- to the big cinema and mm-hmm. watch Hamilton live and have a mm-hmm. couple drinks? Mm-hmm. Would you spend mm-hmm. 50 bucks a ticket? 
Yes, of course you would. You would. The, 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 the challenge, I suppose, becomes, first of all, concern about what that does to the value chain for Hamilton on its other platforms among those who are responsible for Hamilton. So you get into that. And secondly, the question of, well, just how many Hamiltons are there? You know, we can't, we can't keep the lights on if we've got one, one Hamilton. Um, it becomes more of a challenge. The other thing I think that's interesting about um, the second piece that I read was they talked about some of the premium offerings uh, at, uh, for example, the uh, uh, IPEC theaters in Westwood. Right. Westwood, by the way. Westwood, you know, pure Americana, Westwood, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, each pair of seats, $58. And yep. of course, there's a menu, you know, you get the menu, and that's just for the seats, not for the menu. But I was thinking, <laughs> let's see, at $58, how about paying $58 to watch the same movie in the two seats you have at home? Who would do that? And why shouldn't the movie theaters simply tap into the revenue derived from um, the, you know, the, 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 in other words, the gross revenue? Why not just uh, <laughs> be a participant in the gross revenue for the film? rather than say we can only uh, partake in that revenue which comes from our movie theater. It's just a broader way of looking at of the Of course uh, it is. Look, take the, the $116. That's what they're selling gigantic flat-screen TVs for now. Go, <laughs> go get a new one. <laughs> I know. For four seats, you can buy a new TV. Exactly. I mean, where's the logic? All right, you're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. The New York Times can't save the newspaper industry. I mean, Tom... Correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> you've heard, and I know you will, and you've heard and I've heard that, wow, look at New York Times is growing in subscription, digital subscription, and things are coming up roses for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Meanwhile, um, you know, I've got among my various digital devices is my Kindle that has a USA, USA Today app that from what I can tell is almost never updated. <laughs> It's got like, I like looking at the headlines on the USA Today app and it says, you know, it tells you how many days ago something was posted and one is like 154 days. And I'm thinking, Oh, you okay. downloaded the Nostalgia app. <laughs> <laughs> did, yes, the one called USA Today. USA Yesterday. So uh, we got a couple of pieces here. First is from, uh, is, is basically a PR release from the New York Times. Um, and I found this so interesting. It says, over the last year, an interdisciplinary team from the Times Newsroom and Product Arm has worked together to increase the number of newsletter subscriptions with impressive results, growth in the number of newsletter subscriptions, open rates, and visit to NewYorkTimes.com from newsletters. Times free newsletters have always been popular. However, growth remained fairly flat. A team of editors, et cetera, et cetera, have taken a more systematic approach, including better use of analytics, new tools, and promotional strategies. The newsletter subscriptions have more than doubled to over 13 million in April 2017 from 6 million in April 2014, three years earlier. Now, here's why that's important. The Times newsletter business aligns with its business model. Readers who subscribe to the free newsletters are twice as likely to become paying subscribers. Marketers can also reach the Times' highly engaged targeted newsletter reader by sponsoring one of the Times' more than 50 5.0 newsletters, which are available as individual daily sponsorships. So in other words, it is both you know, a sponsorship opportunity apart from the thing that used to be called the newspaper in either digital or analog form. And it is also, Tom, a sales funnel mm -hmm. that leads people to where the money really is. It's subscription. Um, 
The second piece, and then we can talk about all this, is really where the the rubber hits the road, and that is that um, that's great, New York Times. What's it doing for the rest of us? According to a new Pew Research Center analysis, some major U.S. newspapers reported a sharp jump, a jump in digital subscriptions following last year's presidential election, boosting overall totals. New York Times, for example, digital subs in 2016, 47% year-over-year uh, year rise. I won't read you the others. I think the, the main point, the takeaway is this. An analysis uh, shows that total weekday circulation for U.S. daily newspapers, both print and digital, fell 8% in 2016, mm-hmm. the 28th consecutive year of declines. The overall decline includes a 10% decrease in weekday, cir- uh, weekday print circulation and a 1% decline in weekday digital circulation. So isn't that interesting, Tom? Things are great at the New York Times. Things are great at Chicago Tribune. Things are great at the Wall Street Journal. Not so great at USA Today and not so great at your local hometown newspaper. In other words, look, give me the best. I don't need the rest. Yeah, and give me these newsletters free. Give me the newsletters (laughs) free, but again... So give me the newsletters free, but the free newsletters are are, um, uh, are, are sponsored. Oh, no, so no. So I'm yeah. getting money no, there. No, it's a business model. There's no, yeah. it, is, it is purely a business model. So in other words, but is it a business model that scales outside the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, maybe the L.A. Times? Is it a business model that scales to the rest of America? That's the question. No, it's not. And I'll tell you the other thing is that the increase in digital subscriptions, even though it's, it's quite impressive what the Times has done, but those digital dollars and digital subscriptions, that's not enough to offset the falling print ad revenue. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's still a race to cut and replace, right? They're going to replace print subscriptions and print ads with digital, cut expenses to try to stop the bleeding, or they're going to have to innovate, which requires you know, some insights and risk and guts I mean, we're all facing these same choices today. I mean, I think the $10 term for it is, the, you know, creative destru- destruction, mm-hmm. right? This is Joseph Schumpeter back in the 40s. The, the technology is going to advance and, 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 and competition is going to advance in a free economy. And to your point, do I want to sub- subscribe to my local newspaper mm-hmm. if I can mm-hmm. get the best for nothing? Or for cheap. Or if I'm going to subscribe, who, you know, how many newspapers, how many news subscriptions do I need? That's right. Per category, right? And let's say, you know, general news is one category. Industry news might be another. It's a whole different matter, right? If I'm in the ad industry, maybe I'll do a subscription there. But that's different from what I use the New York Times, the Washington Post for. But if I want, you know, kind of the best news, and we recognize that a lot of what's in the local papers come from syndicated sources anyway. Right. That's it. (laughs) I mean— you know, uh, syndication is just a way to make possible something that used to be impossible um, before the Internet. Right. Um, That's exactly and- <laughs> right. That's it. So now I have access to it at the push of a button. So I go and I get my news from the Times, from the Washington Post, whoever it is that I go to. And then if I have some deep dive engagement that I want to do on a particular topic or a local topic, there's somebody with a website out there that's going to give me something better than I'm going to get from the newspaper anyway because that's where they're going to spend their life. 
is trying to curate that information and package it up to me in a way that engages me so that they can go get digital dollars. Yeah, I just, I don't see the play for local, especially newspaper companies. I just don't see the play because you're never going to be the New York Times. Um, and no matter how much innovation you do, you can't catch up to the New York Times because the New York Times has something you'll never have, which is the unique, compelling content right. that is distinctive, um, that uh, marks their competitive advantage. You're just never going to have that unless you syndicate it from them. And then why do I need you? Yeah, it's a dilemma for sure. <laughs> do you see any answer to that? Um, not I really. Don't. Not not really. Not with the model as it exists. I don't see it. Yeah. I don't see it. I would agree. I think the only... Here's the answer to that. The answer to that is uh, more ability to own more platforms across... More, more, more transmedia platforms. So the local radio broadcast or the local TV broadcast or the local newspaper are all owned by one company and they own a bunch of them. And then they can trim the expenses such that the revenue thing uh, resolves itself. That's, yeah, that's possible. Yep. Yeah. That's I, the most I wouldn't want to try that's to pull That's what they that all off. want. <laughs> that's what they all want, by the way. Do they? <laughs> oh, they absolutely do. Right. Rants and raves are coming up. Remember, this episode of Media Unplugged is brought to you by Stack Adapt. Stack Adapt is an omnichannel digital advertising platform that helps brands accelerate customer acquisition. Stack Adapt helps you find audiences that are reading about relevant topics or competing products before they search for them. That means you reach potential customers faster and more efficiently. Please support Media Unplugged by visiting stackadapt.com and requesting an invite today. Tom. Rants, raves. Rants and raves. I heard, I read somewhere, I think it was on Twitter, that you do, a, do you do better rants and raves than me? <laughs> did somebody say that? I, I didn't. Did. did you not share that with me? <laughs> no, I didn't share it with you. Of course I didn't. <laughs> so I'm going to rant only because as I'm reading this piece that I was reading, I, it was in the Wall Street Journal. I just, I just kept shaking my head because it, it, I just couldn't understand it. It, it was making no sense. And, mm -hmm. and then I, I made sense of it at the end. So I'll, I'll take you through it a little bit. So this is a rant about uh, the madness of, of people in the marketplace and a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for anyone who still has a difficult time seeing how big media and advertisers shape culture, all right, and human behavior. Mm -hmm. So the National Football League, I don't know if you heard, has announced new rules which will allow liquor brands to advertise during NFL games for the very first time. Okay, so I guess liquor isn't as bad as they once thought it was. Because right, it's it was, gotten a lot better, actually. Yeah, over the years. it was banned before. So now, yeah. you know, they're looking at it. But, you know, they have dictated that each game can feature no more than four commercials for liquor. And unlike beer ads now, Mark, those ads cannot reference football. So it's like we, it's it's like we love you, but not that much. We don't want we don't want to associate with you. That's kind of taboo. So in other words, the idea is that people can drink. It, it's 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 part of the uh, culture to drink beer while watching football, but not drinking anything harder than that. Yeah, okay, so that's that's part of it. I'll give you some more madness. So the journal also reported on other products that kind of remain taboo to the NFL, and I don't even know. I think it's, I don't know, because it's a vice. I don't, so here, you tell me what it is. So the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas in a few years from California, but the NFL strictly prohibits ads for places that offer gambling. <laughs> okay, now, but, but wait, 
ads for lotteries and horse tracks, that's allowed. <laughs> no, no, I'll give you a little bit more. So ads for Viagra and Cialis and you know these other ED products, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. cool. But mm-hmm. you cannot have any ad for any form of birth control, including condoms. Really? That's against the rules. I, if you try to make any sense of this, the only conclusion you can come to if you want to understand this is to close your eyes and imagine the NFL as Cuba Gooding Jr., Mouthing that classic line from the movie Jerry Maguire, show me the money. <laughs> and then it makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a little stuck on the idea that they don't allow the liquor brands, and yet you can have as many addictive pharmaceutical ads as you want. <laughs> you know, what they should, I would like to see some of these, you know, addictive pharmaceutical uh, companies. Uh, create ads with just guys watching the game with bowls full of caps, caplets, you know, <laughs> capsules, just passing them around. After they pass the Doritos. That's exactly right. So that's <laughs> awesome. Um, well, I have a couple, as usual. I try and always come up with a couple one up just so I can no, hedge so, my bets. So on you know? Twitter, you look better than me. I know. No, 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 no. <laughs> so um, first one is I just, I just, this one just captured my attention. From TubeFilter, ghostwriting for influencers is becoming an increasingly popular career choice. <laughs> what in the world does that even mean? Ghostwriters for, in, so for people influencers. So for people who, want, who have influence? Think YouTubers. <laughs> think YouTubers, okay? Think people who, for whom writing is not exactly... I get you, I you get know, you, okay. A native language. Right. So Marie Claire chatted with several prominent ghostwriters in the space who were tasked with authoring books, blog posts, tweets, Facebook status updates, and more on behalf of digital stars. Some, including 27-year-old adult novelist Zara Lisbon, who has ghostwritten two influencer novels and co-written uh, a book alongside creator Sierra Furtado, described breakneck deadlines and not much contact with the stars whose voices they are supposed to be embodying. Quote, at one point, end quote, she says, of a memoir she was working on about a a teen Instagram star who was entirely removed from the process. Quote, I got the publisher to put me in touch with her dad, and he answered a few questions for me. Just basic stuff about her childhood. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom, I give you the generation that prides itself on its taste uh, and discriminating preference for authenticity. Of course. And artisanal, artisanal. Uh, re- uh, realism. Hey, I saw uh, like artisanal chicken nuggets at McDonald's drive-thru the other day. You're just trying to get me going. No, no, I you? took a picture of it. I'll send it to you when the show ends. <laughs> what makes them artisanal, Tom? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the other one I have for you, this is another precious one that relates to the movie thing. It's, uh, it's from the Daily Beast, and the title is, Hollywood bl- blames critics for its movies being unimaginative pieces of shit. <laughs> um, film industry insiders are complaining that Baywatch and Pirates 5 wouldn't have bombed if critics didn't write such mean reviews up. Uh, isn't that the point? <laughs> so apparently the industry publication deadline, which we've had stuff on this show before from, uh, reported that insiders close to the movies are not happy with critics for warning people off these sinking ships. The deadline piece cited the rancid tomato, Rotten Tomatoes scores for the films, 32% for Pirates, 19% for Baywatch. 
and argued that the aggregation site, which runs its scores on movie ticket purchaser Fandango, is to blame for the bad box office returns. Not, you know, the fact that the films were bad themselves. Right. It's the chicken or the egg argument. Only in actuality, these movies are definitely the chickens, and they've laid rotten eggs. So the critics are saying, hey, these eggs are rotten, and it turns out most people don't enjoy rotten eggs. The critic aggregation site increasingly is slowing down, quote, is slowing down the potential business of popcorn movies, the piece says. Oh, man. Pirates 5 and Baywatch aren't built for critics, but rather general audiences. And once upon a time, these types of films, a family adventure and a raunchy already <laughs> comedy, were critic-proof. So I think that's so funny, because here the internet has, as we all know, democratized yeah, criticism. The, act, yeah, criticism. the act of film criticism. Yes, I mean, as, as, the article, criticism, right? as the article even notes, you know, it used to be that we were all taking the word of two white guys with thumbs. <laughs> now, at least we're listening to hundreds of critics on Rotten Tomatoes. And I can, you know, I know a thing or two about well, this. Yeah. And I can tell you that, you know, that is definitely a broad selection of a, a democracy there. Um, you know, it used to be that critics were kind of these egg-headed snobs, or at least that was the rap on critics, especially the one, ones, you know, the Pauline Kales who wrote for the newspapers and the magazines. That is no longer the case. Critics, it now turns out, Tom, are us. So when critics hate movies, there's a good sense that you're going to hate it too. So welcome to 2017 Hollywood. Although, Mark, I have to tell you, it's, you know, let me let me give the critics their due. At least one of them who I miss. I do miss Roger Ebert because I mm -hmm. swear to you, every film that he loved that I watched, I loved it too. Really, everyone? Oh yeah. Well, maybe maybe I didn't watch everyone. <laughs> you know me, Mister Hyperbole. <laughs> I must say, I never got a chance to reach Roger or to uh, talk with Roger. I wish you did. Uh, we had some email back and forth a few times. Uh, he was aware of some of the stuff I did, you know, once a million years ago when I had a thing that I did that was popular in the late 90s. He had a, uh, there was a magazine called Yahoo Internet Life and Roger had a column in it and he named my, remember when people went looking for websites? He named my <laughs> website as number, as one of the top 20 movie sites and number two in the category of online outlaws, it was called. So cool. I, thanked, uh, I thank him for that then. I thank yeah. him for that uh, now. Uh, and it, it was truly uh, nice to have you. It was nice to know that he would return my email back in the day, but I do wish I'd gotten a chance to meet him. Anyway, that's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher, and while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, and Google Play Music, because we do a lot of music on this oh, show. Oh, yeah, Tom, you big time, that? yeah. <laughs> you can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. If you have anything negative to say about Tom's performance, <laughs> please make sure to tweet him. Send Come us on. your questions <laughs> questions and comments using hashtag media unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. We may actually cover it. We do read all those tweets, by the way. <laughs> I, I do. I read the ones Tom sends me. I read the ones about Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I try and avoid them. <laughs> Catch up on older episodes at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media, and believe me, he ain't kidding. No. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asecker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.